Ghosts and spirits and fringe topics are everywhere these days. I sit here in Paranormal Tower amid this pandemic, three stories up, and surrounded by strange and unusual donations. Some are incredibly mundane in their physicality, but truly odd in their circumstance. And my mind goes back to the tales that I investigated long before the TV shows and movies, when I needed a library card and a tire pump to get where I needed to be. Man can get up to some truly evil and macabre things, and I'm not only referring to criminals. Sometimes the circumstances that happen after a crime are as shocking and off-putting as the crime itself, sometimes even more so. I grew up in New Jersey. For those of you from New Jersey, you require no introduction to the strangeness and obscurities of our history that make our state special. Weird does not do it justice. New Jersey is spectacularly freakish and strange. From the site of the Burr-Hamilton duel, Burr got a bad rap, by the way, to secret societies in the Pine Barrens, New Jersey and her people have never shied away from being strange. Even our ghost stories are complicated, political, and overshadowed by the actions of the living. In Morristown, New Jersey, there's a bank just outside the center of town. That in itself is not unusual. There are lots of banks all over Morristown and lots of banks all over New Jersey. What makes this bank interesting is that it sits upon the site of a large farm from the 1830s. Farms are also not that special. There's lots of them in New Jersey and we're not called the Garden State for no reason. But this farm on South Street belonged to Samuel Sayer and it was the site of a particularly nasty murder on May 11, 1833. The land and every building left behind on it was haunted ever after. The murder was horrific, but the murder was just the beginning. In 1833, Samuel Sayer and his wife lived on their rather substantial farm in Morristown with their servant Phoebe. Sayer was a man of some wealth, hard-earned, he would say, but not excessive. He was well-respected and liked in his community. Sarah, where Sally, as his wife, was known, and he had two adult daughters. One had married and left the home, and the youngest was still with them, although on that day, she had left to attend a funeral out of town. Care for the farm was becoming more and more difficult. 60 years old is old enough to know when you need a little help, and Samuel was no fool, and he determined to get that help. He hired a man by the name of Antoine LeBlanc to help with the upkeep of the farm. LeBlanc had just arrived in the United States from France, where he had left a pretty young woman and an angry boss. Like many in the 19th century, LeBlanc saw America as a land not only of opportunity, but possessed of easy riches for a man such as himself. That man had grown up affluent. That man had more pride than sense. He was educated, but not intelligent. And he had moved from France to Germany, and in Germany he had fallen in love with the daughter of his employer, who did not agree with the match. Angered, LeBlanc had decided to come to the United States by way of France. He decided that he would become wealthy, return to Germany, rub his boss's face in his success, and marry the girl that he wanted. Things went wrong very quickly, considering the simplicity of the plan. Upon arrival in New Jersey, LeBlanc was hired by Sayre to be a farmhand. It is here where the first miscommunication occurred. Sayers was hiring a farmhand, expecting long hours, hard labor in exchange for room and board. There's not a ton of upward mobility from that position. 
It's what would be called a non-starter today. LeBlanc was under the impression that he was being hired as a foreman of sorts for the farm. He saw himself as more management material than menial laborer. It turns out that this would be a fatal misinterpretation of the position for all involved. On May 11, 1833, something clicked in LeBlanc's mind. Something turned over. Something dark. That switch would change the lives of everyone on that farm and set in motion a series of events that would haunt the citizens of Morristown for more than a century. LeBlanc, it seems, had had it. It was May 12th before someone outside the farm knew that something was amiss. A neighbor was driving his cattle from one field to another and happened past the Sayer homestead. He noticed a bundle of clothing haphazardly laying on the ground in front of the house and upon investigation saw that it contained female garments. The dress bore the initials of one of the Sayer daughters. Assuming perhaps that they had been dropped in error as she returned home, he went to the front door to apprise them of the mishap. There he was met with silence, no matter how hard he knocked, and yet there was no indication that the family was gone from home. This raised the alarm, and he sought another neighbor, and they entered the home and searched the property together. Grim scenes awaited them. In the barn, they found Mr. and Mrs. Sayer. Both had had their skulls caved in with a blunt and flat object. The blood-encrusted spade and the pile of manure that they were buried in seemed a likely culprit. This was an ignominious end for such a highly respected couple. Their fate seemed more than cruel. It seemed diabolical. Of course, that was not all that awaited the Good Samaritans. As they inspected the house, relieved to find that the younger Mrs. Sayre was absent, they had the misfortune of discovering that Phoebe, the Sayre's servant, had not escaped the carnage. No, indeed, she had been found in her bed. Sometime in the night, the killer had slipped in and bludgeoned her to death as well. It was immediately noted that the hired man was gone. Moreover, it was pointed out that Sayre's horse was gone. The authorities quickly began looking. It didn't take long to figure out what had happened. They deduced rather quickly that Mr. Sayre had been assaulted in the early evening. Likely, he had been called to the barn under some false pretense. He still wore his work shoes, which meant that it was early in the evening because custom would have had him remove his work shoes for slippers if it was much after supper. Once lured to the barn, he was subdued by a series of crushing, massive blows to his head rendering his skull a pulpy mess. He was then flung into the pile of horse dung and his body hidden. Eventually, Sally, as she was commonly called, became concerned for her husband and came out seeking him in the barn. This would have been somewhat later as she was found wearing her bonnet, which would have been in preparation for bed. That same spade was waiting for her with the same sense of awful purpose and the same deadly force. Her body, too, was flung on the heap, although not hidden quite as carefully. It was then they assumed that the assailant went into the home to eliminate the last of the possible witnesses, Phoebe. After this, the house was ransacked and anything of value that could be carried was taken. Jewelry, clothing, silverware, plate, anything that could be transported. And, of course, Mr. Sayer's horse. The murderer, no doubt, thought himself clever in hiding the bodies as he did. But this was no criminal mastermind. No, this was someone with very little experience in remaining undetected. Before he reached the street to make his exit, 
he began dropping stolen property, like Hansel and Gretel dropped bread. It did not take long to find Mr. LeBlanc as he waited a transport ship to take him away from the United States with his ill-gotten gains, of which there was very little left when they found him. They found him holed up in a bar between Newark and Jersey City, which was known to the locals as the Mosquito Bar. He had left some silverware on him and a watch, but very little else. The horse had thrown him a few towns back and taken off with much of his loot and probably pretty much all of his pride. He had scrambled down Bloomfield Avenue, which was known as the King's Highway, toward the port in Newark, hoping to escape. But they caught him. The crime had been so grotesque and so cruel and ultimately so disrespectful that news of it spread far and wide. By the time the Des Moines Observer reported the story of the murder, Antoine LeBlanc was in custody and writing his confession. There was little by way of defense, and when he was caught, he was convicted relatively quickly. It was customary at the time for prisoners and convicts to sell their stories for a fee in hopes that their families might benefit financially. What made LeBlanc, who was utterly alone in the country, do this is anyone's guess. Perhaps he thought he would set the record straight. Although if that's the case, he certainly did not come out looking that great. Perhaps he thought he would get a cleaner death. Again, that was not a great bargain for him. He kicked for eight minutes. But maybe some of the money did get back to France or Germany. Who knows? LeBlanc had been driven to kill by arrogance, it seems. Pure pride and the inability to get himself out of an uncomfortable position. And his issues in Germany notwithstanding, he thought of himself as management material. Sayers apparently was unaware of Mr. LeBlanc's pedigree. The relationship had never been an easy one. Sayers spoke no French and LeBlanc no English. LeBlanc was gruff and careless in his person and hygiene, which the more fastidious Sayers did not like. But both had jumped at the opportunity without truly understanding what they were getting into. After two weeks of labor, which LeBlanc considered beneath him, it became apparent that the two had reached an impasse, although only one of them was aware of it. LeBlanc came to understand that he was an indentured servant. He worked the farm all day and then was expected to do household chores at night with no pay, only his room and board. This, of course, was a far cry from the management position he believed himself to have accepted. Sayre had replaced a slave who had run away, and so he had no intention of paying for labor. A possible solution would have been for them to part ways, but LeBlanc was filled with resentment and wanted money. He thought little about the consequences, and his plan, if you can call it that, ended in as much horror and violence as one might expect, and even more. When he was caught, LeBlanc was well and truly caught. When he was caught, LeBlanc was well and truly caught. There was little to find to defend himself, and he was convicted quickly. He was granted a short amount of time to make his peace with God. This was fairly standard. It also allowed for his execution to be scheduled and planned, and this execution promised to be a doozy. He was just the sort to bring out the crowds. He was foreign-born and arrogant, and he spoke no English. His confession showcased him as a careless, cruel person who thought himself better than a day's work. How much of this is true is open to question, but his guilt is not, and so he probably wasn't far from the mark. At the time, Morristown was a fairly large town of 3,000 to 3,500 people. The plan was originally to hang him from the town square, but it soon became evident that there would not be sufficient room. 
Instead, a special gallows was erected on a hill just off the center of town that afforded a good vantage point for the people thronging to town on foot, on horseback, and in carriages to watch the Frenchmen swing. In all, 12,000 people came to watch him die, and they got an eyeful indeed. His death was not swift. Despite the scaffolding being built with him in mind, it was not built to deliver him a merciful end. It was made to provide a better view for the crowd. When the trapdoor was dropped, instead of the body falling through and the neck snapping, LeBlanc was jerked eight feet into the air and slowly strangled in front of the masses. It was quite the spectacle. Officials left his body up there for an additional 40 minutes to be certain, beyond doubt, that everybody got a look at it and also that he was well and truly dead before cutting him down. Now here the story usually would end. He would be cut down and remanded to an unmarked grave awaiting the higher judgment. Not this time. It was 1833 and science was ablaze and abuzz with new insights. In fact, there was so much new learning going on that bodies were often swiped from graves for experimentation. But the 19th century was a little bit more enlightened than the 18th had been and local officials could be easily persuaded to donate the bodies of criminals to doctors for research. LeBlanc had been sentenced to this as well as death. In his decree, Judge Gabriel Ford said, You are to be hung by the neck till you are dead, and it is further considered by the court that after execution is done, your body will be delivered to Dr. Canfield, a surgeon, for dissection, and may God have mercy upon your soul. And yet there was something even more strange in this case. The research was not your ordinary medical study of the anatomy. No, in fact, it leaned more heavily on the studies that Mary Shelley envisioned in her dream. What was the line between life and death? Where and what was the miraculous spark? Where does the divine step in? In a little back room in Morristown, New Jersey, the liminal space between God and man was tested on the body of Antoine LeBlanc. After he was cut down, his body was remanded to the Morris County Courthouse, and Dr. Joseph Henry, a Princeton professor, and Dr. Canfield took possession. They made a death mask of his image, which can be seen to this day. They also made a series of incisions in his body. This they did to connect a galvanized battery to his body to see if they could reanimate him using an electrical current. They were able to make his arms twitch and his eyes blink. And when they finished that experiment, they dissected his body. And all of this falls within the realm of normal, I suppose. Experiments on dead bodies advance human knowledge, and if they seem macabre, well, at least they are comprehensible. And yet, that's not the end of Mr. LeBlanc or his debt to society. It seems that murder and execution were so hugely popular events. So popular, in fact, that people wanted souvenirs. Photos are not possible in 1833, and so someone decided that it would be a good idea, a good product, and profitable, to put LeBlanc to more good use. Thus, his body was skinned, the skin was tanned, and it was turned into bookmarks, wallets, and other, quote, goodly little keepsakes, unquote. And so ends Mr. LeBlanc's journey, perhaps. But his actions led to a haunting that has lasted almost 200 years. 
The Sayre Homestead stood until 2009 when it was torn down and turned into that bank I mentioned. But up until that time, each incarnation of the home reported ghostly phenomena. Phoebe, it is believed, lingered. Trapped in those moments of horror, hearing the footsteps move up the stairs, perhaps knowing her fate was sealed. Of all the people associated with this story, Phoebe is the most pitiable and innocent. Often called a servant, she was a person of color, and considering the Sayers owned slaves, she likely was a slave. Her life was taken from her for no other reason than the possibility that she might have awoken. The farmhouse stood for years and even survived a fire in 1957. The families who lived in it all reported seeing Phoebe and feeling her presence in the back room where she cruelly met her fate. In the latter part of the 20th century, the building was turned into a tavern and a restaurant, subsequently called Argyle's, then Phoebe's, and ultimately Jimmy's Haunt. All of these places acknowledged the haunting because, quite frankly, too many people experienced it for them to hide it. When the building was ultimately demolished for a bank, some people wondered what would happen to Phoebe. The question is still open, although from time to time, people still report seeing her in the bank parking lot. The bank itself is mute on the subject. One hopes that Phoebe has moved on and found peace. Her resting place is unknown. The Sayers are in a local burial ground and have a stone to commemorate them. Phoebe lies somewhere close by, unmarked. As for Antoine LeBlanc, well, most of him is buried in a potter's field somewhere. Other pieces of him are held in the New Jersey Museum of Genealogy. And some say Drew University, and some say Princeton have bits of him as well. But those pieces we know of do not amount to the totality of a man. In fact, there are no doubt relics of this criminal still sitting in attics and trunks throughout New Jersey. Now, if you happen to stumble upon one, handle it carefully, and perhaps consider donation to the Paranormal Museum. We would love to house Mr. LeBlanc for a while. Thank you for listening to Paranormal Tower. I, I hope you guys have enjoyed this paranormal tale, and I hope that it encourages you to go out and look at your local history and your local ghost stories. And if you're interested, please share them with us at mystory@paranormaltower.com, or you can call us up at 732-737-9212 and tell the story yourself. If I use your story on this podcast, you're going to get a cool um, artifact here from Paranormal Tower. It'll be a mug or a t-shirt or something along those lines. If you enjoyed Paranormal Tower, please consider giving us a five-star rating. Please also share this on your social media. And if you can, subscribe to us on uh, Apple Podcasts, um, Spotify, pretty much wherever you listen to your podcasts. Again, until we meet again, please keep your eyes, your ears, and most importantly, your mind open. Be good to each other, be good to yourself, and stay safe. <laughs>